Well, we're working through the life of David, and we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 21. So either turn there in your Bibles, because we uh, teach verse by verse, or on the app uh, on your phone, if you have a Bible on there, or you can go to the Calvary Chapel Red Bluff app, and it actually has the verses in my notes, as long as well as other notes that I'll be referring to along the way. So in the last chapter, David and Jonathan were trying to work out a system where Jonathan was going to give it one more try with Saul to say, is there any inroad to change Saul's mind about hating David and killing David? And Jonathan, I think, really thought he could have a conversation with his dad and say, your paranoias of David trying to kill you and overthrow your kingdom are just invalid. David is total loyal. But as Saul, as, David, as Jonathan brought up the conversation of David to Saul, just talking about David, period, Saul freaked out and took that spear that he had thrown at David and this time threw it at Jonathan his own son. Um, And Jonathan got away with his life, and he met David, and he said, there's not a chance. You've got to flee for your life. I think at this point, David was just in a place that was surreal. He just anxiously jumped on the horse, took off riding, and ended up going to the place where the tabernacle dwelt. Eventually, the tabernacle is going to move to Jerusalem, and eventually the temple will be built there. But right now, it's in a number of different locations. And as we come to chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, so David came to Nob. That's the name of a city, or really a hill. And the high priest put their tents and probably built makeshift shacks and stuff and sort of the beginnings of a city of some type, but more out on a hill. And he comes up there where the tabernacle was, and he begins to talk to the high priest. His name is Ahimelech at this time. And Ahimelech, excuse me there, was afraid when he met David. And he said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? So David was not himself, and Ahimelech picked up on this, and and he is wondering, David, you're always with a group of soldiers. Now remember, after David killed Goliath, he began to be promoted by God. He was made a general, even though he was a young teenage boy, he was made the general of as one of Saul's armies. And the Bible tells us that God just put a special blessing on David, a special wisdom, and he continued growing in stature until all the generals started looking to him as their commander-in-chief. And so David was very celebrated. Everybody had a sense of where he was and what was going on. And and he, of course, would be coming with a group of the finest soldiers with him. Wherever he went, he had this entourage as the general uh, of Israel. But on this particular day, there wasn't a group of men. It was David by himself. And Ahimelech discerns. Um, there's something not right here, and it's causing me to be fearful because uh, these are powerful men and play here, and uh, I'm going to be getting caught in the middle of a political situation. And uh, his reaction was fear, and he noticed something. He had a very clear discernment that David was alone. Why are you alone? and no one with you. This was true of David. He truly was alone. Even his best friend, a man that was knitted to his own heart, said, David, 
We have to part ways. I cannot help you. You're on your own. That's a tough place to be. I can remember being back in high school and having a heart to seek the Lord and want to serve the Lord. And, and I couldn't find anybody else who had that desire, at least to the degree and the passion I did. And I found myself very much alone, feeling alone, feeling like where God's leading me, nobody else is going. And, and I just had to get my eyes on the Lord. And I, I don't know if it was at a camp or somebody shared this or just in my own Bible reading. But I remember as a young teenager reading Lamentations 3. I put in my notes, verses 32 to 33. They all apply here, but I'm just going to look at a couple of verses in verse 27, 28, in the beginning of uh, in verse 29 here where God is speaking to Jeremiah as a young man, as a prophet, feeling very much alone. And God says to him, it's good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone, keep silent, because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. God has a season, probably in everybody's life, where they're going to be shut up on every single side, and no one can understand what they're going through. No one can really help them, even if they want to. And there is just a sense of aloneness. And God's instruction is, it's good that this happens. And the sooner this season in your life happens, it's even better. Because there's something God wants to forge in our character when we on every side are shut out from man and God alone can understand us. God alone can be our strength. God alone is the person we have fellowship with because there's just no connectivity anywhere else except in God. And that's God's design. His answer is just shut up, don't complain about it, and just take it for what it is. Put your face in the dust and wait patiently for God to bring you through this season. And God is doing that exact thing to David at this time. You are alone, and there is no man that is with you. And it's exactly the spiritual discernment uh, of where David was at. Well, in verse 2, David said to Ahimelech the priest, Well, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you and what I command you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. David is watching his mouth go up and down, and he can't believe what's coming out of it. In the midst of Ahimelech asking him this question, he was not expected to answer in his own paranoia, he just starts lying. Oh, yeah, yeah, and I got the usual giant group of guys with me, but I'm in a secret mission for Saul. Shh, I'm like, don't tell anybody. Top secret. And, um, oh, the guys are with me, but I didn't let them come to this place of worship like normal. I, I just told them to stay away so they didn't draw attention to the fact that I'm on a secret mission. Where did this come from? David just begins telling this whopper of a lie, and he keeps having to get deeper into it to explain his way out of it. And so then he says to him, like, now therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or whatever you can be found. Yeah, we're on such a secret mission. Uh, we weren't able to get supplies, because that would give away our secret mission. So I'm coming here. And uh, we all need some food. So give us a whole bunch of bread. 
And the priest answered and said to David, there's no common bread on hand. This is a, a temple here. Our houses are a little distance away. Um, there, there's no bread up here. There, there's no grocery stores going on here, David. What, what are you thinking? Um, but there's only the holy bread if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. So picture, if you would, this table of showbread. Picture a piano bench. And picture a lip on that piano bench two or three inches high. They would bake bread and cut it into loaves that would fit perfectly and just slide into that. Now, it was in the temple area where only the priest could go. And so why they're lighting the candles and doing the various priestly duties, if they get the munchies, uh, they can go over and rip a piece of that bread, only the priest, and they could eat it in the presence of God and fellowship with God while they're having their snack. This is the way God had ordained it. But if they didn't eat all of the bread, they would take it and they would give it to the priest and the priest could take it home and feed it to their families and then they would replace it with the new loaf of bread. And he said, we're in the place right now where we're getting ready to replace it. And when we go to replace it, um, at that time, um, I guess if you have a minimal consecration, uh, if your guys and you haven't uh, been uh, with their wives in three days, then uh, that's, I, I guess that we'll just say that you're consecrated enough to eat this bread that was once dedicated for only the priest's use. Now, Jesus talked about this story. Do you remember when his disciples were picking grain on the Sabbath and eating it? The Pharisees came and started accusing them of breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus, rather than divide, debating on the Sabbath, says, well, explain to me the story then when David took the priest bread and the high priest gave it to him to eat. And they couldn't explain it to him. And he said to them, let me explain it to you why God didn't curse David or punish David. Remember, Uriah just went to burn a candle that only the priests were to burn. And he got leprosy on his whole body. So, But there was no fallout from God. There was no blowback from God on David eating this bread. And, and Jesus said, why? Because every rule God makes, every law God makes, every command that God gives is designed to free man up. It's not just a religious rule to make men's life oppressed. But yet all your Pharisee rules, all of your Pharisee interpretations of the law are just that, just adding all this extra stuff, crushing man. They're already tired. They're already carrying burdens. They're already busy. And then what you're doing with all these laws is making it just much harder for them to live a life. Why didn't God mind if David took the bread? Because he's the God of that temple. And if he decides that David can eat it, then David can eat it. Now, now understand, there is no command that says only the priest can eat it. And if anybody besides priests or their families eat it, they're going to be cursed. There's no such thing. It's just saying, hey, it's only for the priest to use. That's why it's in the temple area where only the priest can go. But the moment it's no longer needed for the priest and it goes outside, they can take it home to their children, their wife and their, their daughters, as well as their sons will be a priest one day. And it was counted as common. And Jesus therefore said, here's the thing. I am the God of the Sabbath. <laughs> Don't tell me what I want about the Sabbath. I created it. And I'll tell you what I created it for was for man to be blessed. I know he's not smart enough to give himself a day off, so I'm commanding it. This big old mean God, 
you got to take a break and enjoy yourself for one of the days out of the week because I'm mean. Okay, I've got to take a day of rest. Yeah, it was to free him up, to bless him, not to add all these extra rules. Now, in, in their minds, and, and this was the law, that if you had a basket and you go out and pick a basket of apples that was harvesting, you're working on the Sabbath. But if you were walking through an apple orchard and you, you see an apple and you pick it and you eat it, you're not breaking the law. But the Pharisees said this, in order to eat the grain of wheat, you had to peel back part of the outer shuck to get to the wheat. In the process of taking that wheat apart, you were harvesting. Therefore, you're working on the Sabbath. They just made that up out of the air. They just made that up, sitting around, not having anything better to do than discussing how to put greater burdens on people. And so Jesus said this, the reason you'll never get God, he says to the Pharisees, is because you never got what I've been saying. God loves mercy. Not this bunch of religious legalism, sacrificial stuff, trying to outdo each other on praying and keeping the Sabbath holy and all this stuff. God's not into that. He's into mercy. And had you understood that, you never would have condemned the innocent. Jesus, in the same story, says, I'm a doctor. God's a doctor. He's coming for the sick. He's a shepherd. And when the one sheep leaves, he's out looking for that one that left. I'm out seeking to save that which is lost. And you don't, you don't get that. So this ended up becoming a, a very important story in the life of Jesus. Well, David quickly says to him when he says, if they haven't slept with women for three days, and David answered this priest and said to him, truly, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is effective common, even though it is consecrated the vessel this day. So it just so happens that my make-believe men have not slept with any make-believe women, and it's been a make-believe three days, and so yes, all of us are ready to eat that bread. <laughs> and the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but that show bread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in his place on the day when it was taken away. Now, verse 7 is a footnote to remember about this for chapter 22 when we get there. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doag. He was a dog, just one letter away from being dog. A Doag, the Edomite. Remember Edom? That was the children of Esau that hated the children of Israel. The chief priest of the herdmen and belonged to Saul. In essence, Doag was a wicked man like Saul had become a wicked man. They were equally intertwined in this way. Remember this, that he observed David. Well, in verse 8 now, so David said to Ahimelech, hey, is there any here on hand a spear or a sword? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. So hey, um, hey, you, you guys any, have any extra swords or spears laying around? And again, this is the temple. <laughs> These priests, it's, it's ridiculous. But the priest, again, trying to come up with something, says, uh, well, actually, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the Valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod, the holy garment of the high priest, when he would go before God, inquire on behalf of the people. There, tucked behind it, was this giant sword of, in that sacred location, was the giant sword of Goliath in that sacred location. If you will take that, take it, for there is none other except the one here. And David said, ah, oh, there's none like it. Give it to me. So David is, is just spinning out. He's just lying to this high priest, he's 
asking for a large amount of bread. And then he's asking for weapons from the high priest who would never be a soldier. And interesting, he's able to give him something. Here's some bread. Uh, it just so happens we have the sword that David must have given. Do you remember this story? When David, after he killed Goliath, he took Goliath's sword out of the sheath and he chopped Goliath's head on it, off it, put it on a stick, ran it around, ran it through the city of Jerusalem. Um, and then it says there in, um, that he took, in, in chapter 17, verse 54, that he took the armor of Goliath and put it in his tent. That was his spoil. So he took it home eventually. Now, I think here, and all the commentaries I read also have the same thought, <laughs> that that sort of Goliath would have went above the fireplace, right? In a prestigious place in the home. Definitely a conversational piece. Young boys would have came from far and wide to see David meet this little boy like them and to see that giant sword. And probably it had become a point of pride in David's heart. And instead of the people getting their eyes on the Lord and the great work God had done in delivering them from Goliath and the hand of the Philistines, they were looking at David and praising him. And there came a point where David took that sword down and went and gave it as a sacrifice to God going, this isn't going to be on my mantle. The praise all goes to you, God. And he gave it as a sacrifice. Interesting, in Ecclesiastes as well as the Proverbs, Solomon wisely says, as we give to God, he's able to give back unto us. In Ecclesiastes, he says, cast your bread upon the water, for after many days it will return back to you. And interesting enough, that which David gave to God in sacrifice and worship to him now is being given back unto him at a very uh, important time in his life when he needs that sword back. Now, was it ever of any use to him? I doubt it. I don't think it was of any use to David, really. But it was nevertheless something in his mind at this moment, uh, I need to feel some kind of human security with having some kind uh, of sword. Now, in verse 10, so David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not David the king of the land? Did not um, he sing of him one to another and even dance saying, Saul is slain his thousand, David his tens of thousands. Isn't this guy praised in his land for killing us? That Saul, the great king, has killed thousands of Philistines, but David, exaggeratedly, he's killed tens of thousands. Remember when David was told by Saul, go kill a hundred Philistines and take their foreskin. <clears throat> Got a little dry spot in my throat, sorry that David went out and killed 200 Philistines. So David and many times had faced off with the Philistines and had great victory. And of course, on top of that, he had killed their hero, Goliath, their main soldier, the pride of their country. This little boy had humiliated him with a slingshot and a rock. Now, we happen to know later on when the Bible's going to start talking about David and the mighty men with him, we discover that his mighty men, four of them, had killed Goliath's four giant brothers. That they themselves, hanging out with the giant killer, themselves became a giant killer. Their faith and bravery had increased. So at this time, Goliath's brothers are still alive. 
It's not until next chapter that David begins to get his mighty men to, to go with him. David is by himself. And he goes down to Gath, the place where Goliath is from. Goliath is from Gath. What is he thinking? He's running from Saul. He goes to the temple. He realizes Doag's going to report him. He's, he's lying to the high priest. I, you know, we, we all lie, right? I, I mean, it's a sad thing about our human nature, but we will exaggerate and tell white lies and say things that often don't even matter. It's, it's amazing. But, you know, lying to the high priest at the tabernacle, it just seems like that should be a different classification of lie, right? But in his mind, I'm going to run down to Gath, and that's where I'll be safe. And I don't know what he's thinking. I don't think he is thinking. But maybe he's thinking, hey, I'm this great warrior to Israel, and I'll betray them. And I'll be a great warrior for you, King Abimelech. And they'll rejoice to have me. They'll, I'll be celebrated in the land of and amongst the Philistines like I am in Israel. They'll be more than happy to, to take me into their care. But as David gets there, they, they begin to talk and mutter and, and, and there's one of Goliath's brothers looking down at him and these guys are saying this guy is like the number one enemy of the Philistines we hate him above all of soldiers and in verse 12 when David heard these words he took them to heart and a very much afraid of Achaz the king of Gath so this great terror came upon David he sort of comes out of his Mind and he realizes, I'm in the middle of thousands of Philistines who I've killed their brothers and cousins and sons and dads. And, and, and I just remembered this is where Goliath is from. And I have his sword on my back. I'm like in their face with the fact that I killed Goliath. I'm like celebrating going, hey, look at what I got on me. And he realizes, what am I, this is insanity. I'm going to, and he just has this spirit of absolute fear penetrate his heart. He has this terror come upon him. And he realizes, I'm in serious, serious danger. These guys won't just kill me. They will probably spend many months torturing me before they kill me. And so David, in that moment, when he's taken, as we'll learn in the Psalms, he's taken out of jail. They put him in jail. They take him out of jail and they bring him before the king. In verse 13, so he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the door of the gate, left his saliva fall down on his beard. And Achish said to his servants, look, you see this man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of a madman that you have brought his fellow to play the madman in my presence? So this fellow come to my house. So he's so pitiable, I don't want to even kill him. He's just out of his mind. Just shoo him away like a, a rabid dog. Just get him out of here. You're going, what is going on with David? We just read about him in 1 Samuel 16, verse 18, when they were looking for someone who could help Saul as these demon spirits attacked Saul and he would go mad. And they said, you know what you need? You need to go down to Bethlehem. And his servant said to him in 1 Samuel 16, 18, I've seen the son of Jesse, the Bethamite. And here's how they describe him. He's skillful and plain, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, intelligent, wise when he speaks. 
He's handsome in person, and the Lord is with him. Now, that's the David we know, right? And we saw it play out. He goes down, and Goliath is going, I am insulted sending this little boy out here, and I'm going to cut you up and feed you to the birds. And, and, and David says, you're blaspheming God. You're going to die today, and I'm not going to just do that to you. I'm going to do that to all the armies of the Philistines, and, and I'm going to cut your head off. And, and David, just in faith and, and valor and totally trusting in God and totally brave, starts running at that giant, reaches in, doesn't even have, doesn't even have a bullet in his gun yet. <laughs> He's running full blast and trying to get a rock and he gets it in a sling and whap, one shot, down goes Goliath, rips out the sword, cuts his head off. All the armies of Israel get brave and start chasing and all the Philistines start running and David's running around with his head of this giant on a stick and and we're like going, yes. Now, from this point forward, every chapter is going to be about this mighty man, David. This little boy who was well before his years, a valor man, a soldier, doing everything right, walking by faith, what an example to us he's going to be chapter after chapter, a man living righteously, doing righteously, being brave always. And, and David just gets a few years down the road. <laughs> and now we're seeing him at this incredibly low point going, he's lying his head off. He's not prudent in speech. His big idea was to act like a crazy man, just totally insane, not looking to God at all. Where did David even know to act like that? Probably from observing Saul. Saul was in that maddened condition, and David came in and started playing the instrument and singing and worshiping and began to see the stronghold of these demons letting loose of Saul until Saul was delivered. But he remembered it was impressed upon his brain what it looks like when a man is going insane. And he mimicked that. He mimicked Saul in his madness. And, the, and it worked. And you're, 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 you're saying, man, I, I, I just don't like this story. <laughs> I like seeing David being brave and strong and walking by faith and, and doing great. What, what is the story to us? It, it is a story more similar to ours, isn't it? That, that David's story is that God is faithful even when David, David is wavering. That God's gifts and callings on David's life doesn't stop when David begins to fail in his life. That God is faithful no matter what chapter we are in David's life. I mean, isn't that the story? That God didn't choose a guy who's always going to do everything right every day, every week, always walk by faith, always be the hero. We'd like that, huh? So God chose David and anointed him king. The next chapter, he's fighting Goliath and winning even as a little boy. The next chapter, he does something even greater. In the next chapter, he does something even greater. And the next chapter, you know, he's glowing. <laughs> The next chapter he can fly. I mean, that would that'd be a great story. But in reality, David peaked <laughs> in that story as a little boy fighting Goliath. We'll never see him to that degree again. We'll see him in moments of faith. We'll see him in great moments of obedience. But 
we will more often see him making really bad decisions, sinning horribly, and God not removing his hand from David. God being faithful to David, even when he's screwing up in ways that we didn't even think such a thing would happen. And in essence, God's saying, David, when I chose you, when I called you, I knew (laughs) about your beginning, and I knew about your end, and everything in between. I saw your mountain peaks of faith, and I've seen your valley of slobbering like a crazy man, because you didn't even consider the fact that I was with you. I've seen you walk holy, and I've seen you be about as unholy as a human being can be. And God is saying, I never let you go. The Bible says the righteous man falls seven times. You'd think God would quit calling him righteous after about the fifth time. But no, he's still a righteous man even though he saw him fall seven times in a row. Because he got up. Why? Because he knew that God's mercies would be upon him. The righteous man is declared righteous, we learn in the New Testament, because of his faith in God and God's work. Right? The righteous shall be declared righteous, by their faith. Their faith in the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God. And so, after this instance, David comes back to Israel, and I'm sure in his mind thinking, man, I will never go to that low of a spot ever again. (laughs) Would that be true? No. David had a lot of lower valleys than this to go to, wouldn't he? And so in our life, it's like, I want to live obediently. I want to live by faith. I want to live righteously in all my ways before God. But God repeatedly says to us, absolutely, that is the way you're to be thinking. But in the midst of that, (laughs) I still know you're in sinful body and you're a human And often the things you do want to do, you don't do. And the things you don't want to do, you do do. And you're crazy grieved by it. And you want to give up on yourself. And in your mind, you want to start thinking God's given up on you too. You're disgusted with yourself. So in your brain, you want to start thinking God's disgusted with you too. And God is saying, no, I will never be disgusted with you. You are my child. Where your sin abounds, my grace will abound more. You know, this this is really where it comes down to seeing love. Because when you love somebody, you can only think about them at their best. But when you don't love somebody, all you can do is think about them when they're at their worst. Well, tell me about that guy. Well, I'll tell you about that guy. I'm glad you asked. But then you ask somebody that loves that guy, what do you think about that guy? Oh, man, let me tell you about that guy. He's the greatest guy. Let me tell you about him. So you're looking at this and knowing other failures and sins and David's life, and, and you're saying, how could God say in the New Testament, now David was a man after my own heart who did all my will, period. How can he say that when we have more stories about David's sins and failures? It's simple. God loves him, (laughs) right? God loves David. But God, how how can you choose David knowing David's going to go through such incredible low spots? Because I'm looking at his heart. And even when he was failing, he hated it. 
He wanted to do differently. He shocked himself. He surprised himself. But when he was faithless, I remained faithful. My gifts and my calling are irrevocable. And David, when you look at him at his best, there's no one like him. He had a heart towards me that is unique in all the earth. So as you're looking through the story and you're saying, well, you know, yeah, Abraham, of course, he was a righteous man. He was a great guy. And Noah, I mean, he was amazing. And, and Joseph, oh, man, I'll never be a Joseph. And Daniel, oh, man, that guy, I, you know, me, I'm just a big screw up. Look at this chapter of my life and this chapter of my life and this chapter of my life. God doesn't do that, does he? He tells us, yes, Abraham was a righteous man, the father of the faith, but he had a problem with lying. And when he had a hard time believing that God could protect him from evil kings when it came to his beautiful wife, and he would lie saying he was her sister, not once, twice, put his wife in a horrible situation twice. She was in a king's harem getting ready to be married to these kings. And Abraham was not saying a word. God had to supernaturally deliver her because of the lack of Abraham's faith. But yet in Romans 1, it says, now Abraham, there's a guy I loved. He never wavered in unbelief. <sighs> I, I don't see how you see that in Abraham. But he's like, no, no, he struggled. He had, you know, he had some little owies, and I kissed him and put a band-aid on it and put him back on his tricycle and said, go back out there, be brave. It looks like more than an owie to me. Well, you're not his dad. I am. Noah. Now there is a righteous man. 600 years. Anybody want to live on earth and have 600 Monday mornings? <laughs> 600 years worth of Monday mornings? Oh my goodness. But yet, he continued on. But yet, what's the last thing we hear about Noah? He was lying drunk, naked, shamefully, and his kids, hey, dad, you want some uh, pancakes? Uh, ah! <laughs> he was totally drunk, passed out. That's the last thing we hear about Noah. Well, what's God saying? God is saying, I am not ignoring the fact that you are in sinful bodies and that you are human and that to desire to do righteously is within you. Your spirit is willing, but I also know in advance your flesh is weak. And it's not making me erase you out of my life. It's not making me give up on you because of that chat last chapter. <laughs> Chapter 21 of your life, that's it. I'm done. There is no chapter 22. In essence, he's saying, get it. The guys on earth that I'm declaring to you as the most amazing guys that have ever walked this planet, look at them, follow their faith. I love these guys. I'm celebrating them in heaven for eternity. These guys weren't weak. <laughs> a couple of times in small ways. These guys, just like you, just like me, were in this human, same weak flesh, and they sinned. And I knew it before time began. And so now here you are, and God is saying, I'm for you. I'm with you. I've got you. But I'm in this valley that I never thought I would fall. You know what? I paid for all your sins 2,000 years ago in advance on the cross. And I grabbed those down in the deep, dark place as well. I didn't just take like the 
bad sins in your life and the 40% really bad ones, uh, I'm not going to die with those. Those are too smelly and filthy to, to, to lay on my shoulders. No. Our hearts are desperately, deceitfully wicked. Our sins is our, our righteousness, our best righteousness is as filthy rags before God. But he took all the rags, all the sin, and paid for it on the cross. Uh, in short, here's a question we need to ask ourselves. David was by himself. He could have kept this story to himself. <laughs> the only way we know about this story is David told us. And you know what? David didn't hide it. David didn't say, I'm just going to act like it never happened and nobody knows and I'm not going to tell. David says, look, this was a moment I wish never happened. It was horrible. It was disgraceful. It's not the man I want to be. It's not the man God can do in me. I've seen better. But at the same time, I've got to tell you this story because God was triumphed. God triumphed. God had victory in my situation there. And I want to proclaim and praise him because God was with me, even when I was acting as faithless and stupid as I could be. And David wrote two Psalms, Psalm 56 and Psalms 34, talking about this story. If you would turn in your Bible to Psalm 56, just for a couple of minutes here. It says that this is a psalm that was given to the chief musician. And David asked him to use the music from a well-known song, The Silent Dove in the Distant Lands, and to make that, this psalm sung. It's a michetum, a teaching of David, when the Philistines captured him in Gath. And in Psalm 34, it says when he was um, acting like a crazy man before the king of Gath, Psalm 34. We're not going to be able to read that today. But here in Psalm 56, he starts out and he says, Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up fighting all day. He oppresses me. I'm getting it from Saul and Israel, and then I'm getting it from the enemies around Israel. Oh, God, <laughs> be merciful. I don't deserve it. I'm not asking you to give me what I deserve. I'm asking for you to be kind to me, even though I've been so foolish. I'm asking you to strengthen me, even though I, I've just tried to work it all out in my own flesh. And, and just help me. I, I, I'm, I'm shocking myself. I'm surprised I could be so without faith. I'm surprised I could go through such a circumstance and not look to you or cry out to you, but I am now. In verse 2, my enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, almost high. Man, as well as demons, <laughs> were realizing who David was and wanting to take him down. And in verse 3, whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. David is remembering that paralyzing fear. And he's saying, when that fear comes upon me like that again, when anxiety comes upon me, when I am just paralyzed with this fear of torment or terror, when I'm in that place, and I, I've experienced it the first time when I was there in the land of Philistines, there in Gath, and I've experienced it many times since, he said, I, I realize at that time more than any time, I have to put a trust, a faith in you above all things to get my eyes upon you. And the New Testament expounds upon this truth. In 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So God has given us a spirit where when that terror comes upon us, God's spirit is living in us. We, we realize it's of the enemy. We realize it's of our human flesh, just weak and breaking down and 
and our brain is just not what it used to be, and our emotions aren't as strong as they used to be. And, and when we're in that place of physical, spiritual weakness, we, that God is able to lift us up and not keep us, not allow us to stay in that place. And then on the other side, with love and a sound mind, it's when bitterness is trying to eat me up or trying to, the hurt of man is trying to rip me down. In that place, you're going to give me your strength. In verse 4, he says, In God, I praise his word. In God, I put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? He says, I'm looking to you. How do I really see you and understand you? It's through the Bible. The kings uniquely were able to write down the scripture in their own hand and have their own copy to read daily. In Matthew 10, Verse 28, Jesus says, don't fear him who can kill the body and not hurt the soul, but fear him who can damage the soul and the body in hell. So fear God and fear men who can compromise you spiritually. Don't worry about men that can only hurt your body. And in verse 5, all day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together. They hide They mark my steps and they lie in wait for my life. Shall they escape my by iniquity and anger cast down the peoples, O God? You number my wonderings, put tears into your bottle, and they are not in your book. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because what? God is for me. That's it. That's the key. I finally, I finally get it. My dad, he just, he doesn't appreciate me. He doesn't believe in me. He acts like I don't even exist. Remember when Samuel called and said, hey, you've got to have another son. No, not really. Well, I, I'm not going to call him in. He's out with the sheep. He's a little kid. It can't be him. Samuel's like, that's the guy. Bring him in here. And we see that David says, man, every time I needed my father and mother to be there to support me, they were not there. They failed me repeatedly. My brothers, they, they disrespect me. They, they don't have any desire to see God lift me up. And now he goes over and he gets this new family. Jonathan, you're, you're, you're my best friend. You're, our souls are connected. You're the brother I've never had. How healing this is, Jonathan. Saul, my father-in-law, head taller than every man. You got this charisma about you. You're the king. You're the warrior. You're confident. And you love me. You appreciate me. You're saying, be the, a general. Marry my daughter. You're, 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 you just, oh, you, you, man. When we're growing up and we don't have that dad figure in our life, like our soul longs for, it becomes a vacuum. And guys start looking for some other man in their life to take that, to fill that void, to take that place. David now has a family. I've got a brother and some sisters and I got a dad. And, and it's not just a family, it's the king's family. And, and I'm the general and God's lifting me up in this family. And Jonathan loves the fact that God's lifting me up. And Saul loves the fact that I'm spiritual and can help him through dark times. And I'm wise helping him with the country. And it, it just, oh man, I finally got a place I belong. And then Saul starts getting paranoid, saying, out. Not only do I not love you, David, I hate you. And you are my mortal number one enemy. I cannot eat, drink, or sleep without thinking about wanting to kill you. Jonathan says, you are as my own soul, but I I can't help you anymore, David. You got to go away. And David now is is just in that place of realizing 
I'll probably never have a father, even a father figure that speaks into my life. The one man that will never be repeated, that relationship, that intimacy, that partnership that I had with Jonathan will never be repeated. And I've lost that now. He'd never see Jonathan again. David says twice in the Psalms, vain is the help of man. Have you guys learned that yet? When you are at your weakest and you need man to strengthen you, to help you, they're not there. It's a part of God's plan. It's part of God doing that. When you're at your weakness, there's none to help you. And then you look to somebody to try to lean on. Well, you're not my family, but I'm going to pretend you're my family. You're not my brother, but I'm going to let you fill that vacuum as my brother. You're not my dad, but I'll let you fill that vacuum as my dad. And boy, it's sweet at times. But then when I'm really, really hurting, when I really, really am going down and I need just one little person to lean on a tiny bit, no one's there. If you don't get that, you're just going to live bitter. You're just going to go, man, man, veins to help a man and end a story, you know. As soon as I can buy my own mountain and put my own shack on it, you know, I'll put a big giant sign saying stay away. Just understand, this is man. God has has made it in such a way he's going to bring you to a place repeatedly that your eyes are to be upon the Lord. The fellowship you desire is in the Lord. The longing, the vacuum to to bring you into intimacy with a man closer than a brother, it's Jesus. All your longing is going to be fulfilled in him and him only. And God is once again taking us to that place. You ever do that with your kids where they just are... They can't listen to you and you're trying to talk to them and you finally grab them and you grab their little face and you look at them and they're trying to get away and you're just like, okay, listen to me. Here's the next instruction. I love you. You're my child. Here's the next instruction. God in essence has to do that repeatedly, doesn't he? The very center of the book of Romans Romans has 16 chapters in it. Chapter 8, it has that passage there. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? David came to that place. It doesn't matter if everybody in the world is an enemy of me. It's irrelevant because God's for me. That's all that matters. Naked I came in this world, naked I go out, life is a vapor. This this life is not going to define me. It's my life in God. I'm trusting in him. I'm looking to him for everything. And David says it over and over again. The Lord alone is my salvation. The Lord alone is my shield. Oh, why are you disquieted? Oh, my soul, hope in God. And God, in essence, is grabbing all of our faces today and looking at us and saying, it's in me. Your mom's going to fail you. <laughs> she didn't want to. There's just things that you need that she can't, she can't help you. In the times you need her the most, God's not going to allow her to be there. Your dad, your brothers, your sisters, your best friends, your hope is in God. It doesn't matter who's against you because God's for you. Noah was a man He alone was right. (laughs) Everybody in the world was wrong. For 600 years, he had to walk with God with no support. His family finally came along with him at the last moment and jumped on the ark. But outside of his three boys and their wives and his wife, all the billions of people that were on the planet We're against Moses. I don't think we're ever going to be in those odds. But even if we were, maybe you are at work or school or in your home situation, it's irrelevant. God is 
for you. Amen? He goes on to say in verse 10, in God I will praise his word, in the Lord I will praise his word. Verse 11, in God I have put my trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Absolutely nothing. It can only hurt the body. In verse 12 and 13, vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render my praise to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not, have you not kept my feet from falling? that I may walk before God in the land of the living. You've kept me in some of the most foolish, sinful, difficult times in my life. I have learned your mercy and goodness are gonna follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your story that you have for us to see that there's no partiality with you, that you love us all equally as your kids. And all the times you don't fill it, all times our emotions are going crazy and we don't want to believe it, but you are for us. You'll never leave us nor forsake us. That when we're faithless, you remain faithful. You can't deny yourself. And we ask today that you would increase all our faith, putting that faith in all our souls to say, yes, Lord. We believe you above all else. In Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen, Amen. amen.